CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. Here's an article in today's Sun-Times, uh, kind of relevant to the conversation uh, that I'm about to have with my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting, uh, although it's a different, completely different venue or location. Uh, here's the headline. After backlash, council drops restrictive new rules to public seating at its meetings. I had not really talked about this uh, on the show. I don't know if I talked about it at all. I've talked about it a lot off mic uh, with various friends and political junkies uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, Brandon Johnson's administration very, very frustrated uh, with protesters showing up at city council meetings, city cub, subcommittee committee meetings as well to scream and yell. Uh, regard, uh, I don't know. There's people screaming and yelling about uh, uh, the war in Palestine. There's uh, people screaming and yelling uh, about it. it Immigration policy in ten cities. Uh, it was it's just very intrusive, uh, very ugly, very obnoxious in many cases, but very democratic. Small D. I mean, free expression, etc., and so forth. Uh, and um, so, Brandon Johnson, Mayor Johnson, his administration got tired of it. Got tired of having to get the sergeant of arms to clear the the hall all the time. Uh, got tired of Alderman getting abuse, abusive remarks hurled hurl at him. Uh, so, in their infinite wisdom. Uh, they decided to take it to the next step and have you got to get approval to be seated in the city council chamber under the proposal that they had. Uh, there was an uproar uh, from the public. <laughs> and I kind of was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of with the, the small D Democratic people on this one. It's like there's, I guess, abusive participants in democracy are sort of what we put up with uh, in democracy. Uh, and if you tell them that there's a protocol they have to follow and they abuse the protocol and then they get asked to re to leave, that's one thing. Uh, but if you just have a s uh, seating limited to only friends of the mayor, mm, that's another thing. So I didn't think it was a very good idea. 
but I'm happy to say uh, that Ronnie Reese, my old friend, the mayoral spokesman, Ronnie Reese, uh, said the city uh, will continue having conversations on best practices. Ronnie, I just got to give you a shout out, man. That is beautiful spin right there. We're going to continue. <laughs> In other words, what you did was you dropped this uh, <laughs> much detested policy, uh, much criticized policy, uh, but you reserve the right to bring it back. So it's not like you're admitting you did anything wrong. Ronnie, you've mastered the art. You've mastered it, Ronnie. Give yourself a raise, Ronnie. Take it out of petty cash. All right, I'm glad. Whatever whatever face-saving way they have of dropping it, they have dropped it. And, and we can move on with our conversation. We're bringing my distinguished guests. We're going to talk about free expression issues uh, at part. So that's why there's sort of a connection. So without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Um, I'm David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and columnist at Slate and Newsweek. Um, and uh, yeah, we got really a, a light lineup of uh, you know free speech and genocide for you today. It really should be a relaxing afternoon. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, David, before you, we do the recording, sends me his latest uh, essays. Uh, and uh, he, I asked for one in particular. He sent it. Uh, that has to do with free speech in the university setting. And then the other has to do uh, with genocide and the definition. Uh, so we're going to cover both of those topics today. Um, yeah, so it's uh, there's a lot of issues to unpack here. I'm going to start with the free speech one. Uh, and based on uh, your essay, I'm going to start uh, with this uh, uh, waiver of sorts that I'm going to begin with. Uh, people in the universe, David Ferris speaks for David Ferris. He does not speak for Roosevelt University, which employs him. Do not hold anything that David says against Roosevelt University. If you do so, you're being anti-democratic, that's small d, uh, and you're just probably trying to take advantage of a situation to make, to, to show your, di what is it, your disapproval of what David says, uh, as opposed to anything he did wrong. So he speaks for himself. He does not speak for Roosevelt University. Uh, and therefore, that's what we have to do, uh, David, uh, in in the land of the free and the brave when it comes to first expression. Right? <laughs> I thought of that, uh, of, of saying, I do that, by the way, that intro, not with Roosevelt University, but with city workers when they come on. And they're going to criticize something that uh, the city is up to. And I'll just say this person is speaking for himself or herself. David, they do not speak for the city of Chicago, so don't unfairly punish them or punish the city for what this person says. Uh, I shouldn't have to say that, but the reality uh, is it's necessary uh, in many cases. And this became an issue. You, you sent me the essay you wrote about free speech in universities when I asked if you had any thoughts about the three presidents. We've talked about this on the show, the three presidents being the president of MIT, the president of Harvard, uh, and the president, the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, she's already stepped down, who uh, were grilled uh, by Congresswoman Stefanik from New York, who may be the biggest fraud in, in Congress right now. We'll ask David for his opinion on that. Uh, and, uh, well, actually, yeah, George Santos has, has left the room. So uh, she may have emerged as the biggest fraud. Um, so, uh, wow, so much to unpack here. Why don't you start with sort of your general uh, thesis about the limits of free expression uh, on college campuses, and then we'll get to uh, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, uh, and Penn, and the fallout from their appearance uh, at, at Congress. Take it away, David. Sure. Um, 
So I just bracket all this by saying <clears throat> I have a general critique of the way that we talk about higher education in this country, um, and I call it Harvardism. Um, and it is a like a like a focus on these like handful of elite institutions and what happens there and like what their student groups are saying and like what the administrators are doing, including like people. It's like people run whole stories in the Atlantic about some like email that like a assistant dean at Yale sent to the to, to the law students or whatever, right? Um, and I, I find this like weird focus on the Ivy League and a handful of adjacent institutions to be like really have a distorting effect on how people understand the institution of higher education, like what we actually do and what goes on at like 99.9% of the campuses in the country. Okay, so I'm going to bracket the whole conversation with that and I'll save your listeners the time. Yes, I did go to the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when I when I... When I bitch about these places, I do so from a place of like self-awareness um, and also frustration with some of the things that I experienced there. Okay, um, but my general thesis about free speech on campus is two, it's twofold. Okay, one, the legal regime on public and private universities is different, and that's for a number of different things. Okay, um, in other words, your First Amendment protections as a student or a staff member or a faculty member at a public institution are different than those at a private institution, okay? And so all three of the institutions that are in the news this week are private colleges, right? Um, and at a private college, your free speech rights are just freedom from government censorship. In other words, the U.S. government can't come into your classroom um, or your, by the way, people always, all these articles that like complain about faculty in colleges always talk about like, well, that's what's going on at the Harvard faculty lounge. Okay, let me tell you something. Okay, There are no faculty <laughs> lounges. They don't exist. No one goes to them. It's not a thing, Ben. There are no faculty lounges. There's no such thing. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, they've all been sold to like, you know, whoever rents out spaces at your university. Okay, that's what they're doing with the faculty lounge. Um, so people in the popular imagination, right, like a college campus is this like, you know, First Amendment playground where people just like sit around like debating hot button topics with each other. You know, like they'll sit around the campus quad, um, you know, with their like Birkenstocks and like yell at each other about abortion. Right. And like that's what you do in college. Okay, This is like so far removed from anything that truly really goes on at most universities. Like I just couldn't overstate the fact that debate is not central to the college experience. Okay. I don't set up my classrooms to be like revolve entirely around debate. You know, like I don't come in every day and I'm like, so genocide <laughs> up or down, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down trans people. We like them or we don't like them, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. That's not, that's not what we do. Okay. But when, when like writers for the Atlantic talk about higher education, they just remember these like eight moments from their college education in 1982 where they're like, well, I debated no fault divorce with my professor. And so I should, be, you know, like, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Um, there's both a misunderstanding of what happens in colleges and a popular misperception about where speech rights are there. Okay. Um, and I've seen a number of articles come out this week that that purport to say that the First Amendment is what should be governing what can and can't be said in a college classroom, on a college campus, um, in shared common spaces in a university setting. Okay. Um, and I just, my thesis is that is an inadequate framework to govern relationships between individuals at an institution where people live and work, right? Um, I, um, the, up until this past couple of weeks, 
um, when these three presidents seemingly picked at random, <laughs> but not, of course, right, because they're from institutions that we focus on to the exclusion of all others, when they ran afoul of, um, of people's expectations of how um, incidents of anti-Semitism or expressions of support for the Palestinian cause should be treated on their campuses, right? A lot of the stuff is donor-driven, right? Like um, a billionaire basically just like deposed the president of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I am not an apologist for the president of the University of Pennsylvania. Okay, like one of the things I did when I was young was I crashed the um, uh, the inauguration of Amy Gutman, who was the last president of Penn, because I was part of a unionization effort for the grad students. And we wrecked her day. And I ended up on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and my parents were like, you're ruining your life and your career. What are you doing? Um, but I didn't, I didn't care. And I don't care now. <laughs> so I'm like a little bit reckless in that regard. Um, so they, they ended up on the wrong side, right? And they got hauled before Congress. And they're like, well, um, the premise of the right-wing critique here is they're like, well, you have safe spaces for like, uh, queer students, or you have safe spaces for black students, but like, why don't these same rules apply um, to, to to Jewish students, right? And in like, there's there's three moves being made here, like several of which are disingenuous. Okay, um, the this the premise of the hearing. So there was a hearing last week uh, uh, during which uh, Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, who is I don't know if she's like a personal fraud like George uh, Santos, but she is. Um, as intellectually bankrupt as anybody in Congress. Um, and so the whole premise of the hearing, right, there were some incidents of anti-Semitism, right, like targeted harassment or bullying of Jewish students, right? That is like, these are violations of the school's codes of conduct. There's no question about that. Whatever procedures that you have to use um, uh, to discipline or expel those students based on what they did, I, I don't like. I just don't know who would object to that, right? Um, and to the extent that there's been an upsurge in those kinds of incidents against Jewish students, that's a huge problem um, that the university presidents need to be dealing with and be front and center in condemning. So I just want to get that out of the way, right? Like personal, directed, targeted harassment, um, expressions of racism towards uh, individuals on your campus. I don't know any campus in the country. Um, where like, you know, leaving somebody a threatening note on their computer uh, wouldn't get you haul at least hauled in front of a provost or something or, or thrown out of the school, right? And that's as it should be. I have no problem. Like nobody has any problem with that, right? Because I, I, we don't want to see anti-Semitism. We don't want to see expressions of, of anti-Jewish hatred. It's, it's a terrible thing, okay? But what they were doing at this hearing was they were trying to conflate individual targeted harassment of Jewish students with... Um, expressions of solidarity for Palestine. Okay, the, the right-wing maneuver these days is to equate uh, a position of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. That's one that's been endorsed by the ADL, I think really shamefully. Two, um, most preposterously in my mind, is that at least Stefanik claims that the use of the Arabic word intifada um, constitutes a call for genocide against Jews. Uh, sort of a segue into our discussion later on right like intifada is just an arabic word Ben. it means uprising it means like the literal meaning of it is shake off right um a shaking off it's how we refer to the um the peaceful uh palestinian uprising that started in 1987 it's also the word that's used to refer to the i would say less peaceful <laughs> second intifada in the early 2000s but whatever it's just a word man like you can't say that a word is in, like a word that has no connection to judaism at all <laughs> 
like using that word, which colloquially means uprising in Arabic, is not anti-Semitism. It's just that's like bananas, right? Um, and the other thing that they're saying is a call for genocide against Jews is to use the phrase from the river to the sea, right? Um, and we've talked about this on the show before, right? Like I, if I, if I controlled the left-wing activism movement, Ben, which I don't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would be like, what about a different phrase? You know, like what if we use something else, uh, that isn't loaded like this? Um, and it's like, well, they're not, they don't care what I think. Okay. Justifiably so they could care less what I think. Okay. Um, and it's possible I'm wrong about it, but who knows, right? But like most of the people saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free are calling for a bi-national state, you know, like a one person, one vote situation in which all the, all the, all the Jews and Palestinians in that territory have the same rights. Okay. Which is, I would point out, not the situation in Israel right now. Okay. Um, and you can find that a distasteful call. You can find the phrase annoying. You can find it counterproductive. Um, you can even think that it that it threatens the current character of the state of Israel. And none of that makes it anti-Semitism, right? None of that makes it something that, like, if you're uh, like if you're a student group and you lead a protest through campus, and I again couldn't emphasize enough, protesters, please just like protest something else, okay? Um, Todd Gitlin used to call this marching on the English department while the right takes the White House. Right. Like um, focusing your activism on your own university. It's like it's a low hanging fruit and I get why it happens. And I did it when I was 18. Um, but I, there's like better things we could be doing with our time. OK, but like marching through campus, shouting from the river to the sea is not calling for a genocide against Jews. Right? And to claim that is like among the most tendentious things I've ever heard in public life in the United States of America. OK, and that is why these guys were hauled before Congress. Okay? They were not hauled before Congress. Um, <clears throat> because of a rise in uh, in sort of like legitimately anti-Semitic incidents, right? They were called before Congress because they are not uh, doing the bidding of right-wing donors who want to silence student groups and to silence professors uh, and to prevent them from uh, expressing solidarity with Palestine or taking a pro-Palestinian position. It's the same stuff from the early 2000s. I used to get followed around in my classes when I was a grad student at Penn by people from an organization called Campus Watch, um, which would compile lists of uh, anti-Israel professors um, and uh, and try to get them fired or harassed, right? Like that was the whole point of the organization. And that organization has like changed its name, but the basic premise is that there are a bunch of right-wingers in America who who's like number one target in, in academia more than anything else, like more than anything else that people could try to get you fired for. Um, it's, it's, being, it's being on the side of the Palestinians in this conflict, right? So that's the windup, right? Like, um, and it does get into these really thorny issues about speech, right? And so to tie it back to the First Amendment, um, the First Amendment is not enough, right? Because the First Amendment is an extremely permissive speech standard um, that doesn't govern like any workplace, and like nor should it, because the First Amendment would allow me to go into the classroom and be like, I'm not gonna like. Like, I'm not going to commit a slur on your show, Ben, but I could walk into the classroom and I could be like, you know what? I was thinking like everybody from insert group here should be killed. What do you think? Um, and that, according to the First Amendment, is, is not actually an incitement to violence. Right? Like if, I, if I'm using the standard as the First Amendment, like you can say anything um, that is not literal incitement to violence right, or targeted bullying or harassment of a single person. I just like I just don't think you want to go down that road. Right. 
um because that means like you know we can sit around and like we'll have like a whole class of like uh like uh, you know political science 220 uh holocaust denialism like i love holocaust denialism right it's the best i could do that under the first amendment rubric right um but the reality is that like um both public and private institutions have to create some sort of community guidelines for how the members of their community will interact with each other and 99.9% of the time those guidelines are unproblematic and uncontested because most people are not sociopaths who talk about holocaust denial in their classes right um but there there are always a handful of things um that make this all really raw. Like usually it's the invitation of particular speakers to campuses um, that some student groups or administrators or donors or outside groups or like right-wing like uh, provocateurs who seem to do nothing but like just scroll through college newspapers looking for controversy. Um, one of these speakers annoys them, right? Um, and there has been a tendency on the political left um, to boycott or to try to shut down certain kinds of speakers who come to campus, right? And I've always kind of taken a dim view of those efforts, right? Especially when they're directed against like public figures, you know, like, I'm like, okay, so the, the, the former head of the, the International Monetary Fund can't come to campus. Okay. Like, you know, Condoleezza Rice or Colin, but I'm like, these are people all that, they should all be allowed to speak on your campus, man. I'm sorry. Like what, whatever you think they did or they didn't do, you know, they're, they're legitimate public, public figures uh, or scholars with views that you don't agree with. Like, I don't, I don't believe in shutting those events down, right? What I do object to, and I will promise I will stop talking after this, <laughs> um, is, the, is the structuring of campus guest speakers around provocateurs, right? There are people, most of them on the political right, who have, made, who have like a whole cottage industry of like booking gigs at universities, watching them get canceled because student groups object to them, and then going on TV and be like, got to give me more money. Look, the kids at Harvard are trying to cancel me, you know, just because I said, just because I said black people should be grateful for being taken away from Africa. <laughs> I mean, I just can't imagine why they wouldn't want me on campus. Um, like, I guess the long and the short of it is that, right, like, um, in the popular imagination, guest speakers on campuses have more free speech rights than I do as a professor. And in some ways, that's actually true. It, there are both formal and informal limitations on the things that I can say. It's the reason that you had to do, well, you didn't have to, but I appreciate it. The thing where you're like, I don't speak for Roosevelt, right? And I don't speak for Roosevelt. That's why I have on my Twitter page, like, opinions are mine alone, right? Um, because there are things that you could say if you were representing yourself as, like, a faculty member at Roosevelt that would, like, annoy my bosses in a way that they probably could fire me. Right. Like, depending on what I say. Um, and there are some professors who are like big jerks, man. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to tell you, they just they think they can go on Twitter and just say, like, literally whatever they want and there will be no consequences. And it's like there are a lot of legal gray areas here. Right. Um, I, I just I just think it's it's important to be responsible. Um, but the reality is that the presidents of those universities were not wrong about their own policies. They were. You know, they were lawyered up to within an inch of their lives, okay? Lawyered up to within an inch of their lives. And maybe they should have said, like, yes, um, uh, a student that's like, we should commit genocide against the Jews, like, well, there should be some discipline against that student, right? But if that's what they're saying, they are not being governed by the First Amendment. 
because for better or for worse in the United States of America, Ben, it is not illegal to call for genocide. Okay. Um, and if it was, there'd be like a lot of like right wing uh, Israel supporters who would go to jail too, um, because there are actually a lot of calls to to commit crimes against humanity against the Palestinians right now, just out there in broad daylight. Nobody cares. So I, I'm at a, I promised I would stop. Well, okay. So there's <laughs> a lot uh, to unpack in that riff. That's a great riff. Uh, and I'll start with the last thing, which was probably uh, the least significant thing he said. Of course, that's the part I'm going to start with, uh, is the performance of the three um, college professors whose names I cannot remember. And I did not write them down, so I humbly apologize uh, to those three individuals. just can't remember your names. I can see your faces. Uh, and <laughs> I, I didn't know any of your names before this began. I humbly apologize you for that as well. Uh, I have a lot of obsessions, not one of which is college professors. I mean, excuse me, uh, college presidents or university presidents. Uh, but yes, their performance <laughs> was abysmal. It is, uh, as a podcaster, I would say this. I tell people this all the time. We're all adults. We're all grownups. You have to learn how to talk. If, that I think that at a certain level, um, we all need to learn how to speak into a microphone and uh, convey our our feelings in such a way that um, we get to the point of what we're going to say, we articulate the uh, our purpose, our meaning, but we do it in a way that we can live with in the aftermath. All right, now I, clearly these presidents have not taken uh, my podcasting course, which I don't even offer because that was. The abysmal legalese lawyered up where they man just say it you just go like you said uh if someone says that is uh they want genocide uh, against jews uh does that violate your code yes it violates my code just you say it it's over because it probably does the way stefanik presents it violate the code so I'm with you 100%. What a terrible performance. Uh, that it, now, let's get into the issue of academic freedom because your point is very well taken. Uh, why I called her a fraud is that she's doing what uh, Stefanik, Congresswoman Stefanik, is doing uh, in a political situation, what she claims the left is doing, and that is canceling culture. And that is uh, forcing other people to to bow to whatever her agenda is, her language is, her political position is. She's being a bully. Uh, and uh, live, jobs are at stake, lives are at stake, et cetera, and so forth. For all we know, our democracy is at stake because if Trump were to win this election because people are upset at what went down uh, last week in Congress, which is really ultimately, I think, what Stefanik's point is, hope is, uh, we have all uh, lost. So th the notion that you could have academic freedom, David, and not say intifada is like such a form of censorship. I can't imagine a law, a law school in America, you're like the conventional notion of what happens in a law class is a Socratic method where the the professor peppers the students with questions like the Supreme Court justices pepper lawyers with questions to force them to confront the contradictions and uh, in what they're saying and the inconsistencies in what they're saying and to try to get them to by using examples to think to like 
that just challenged the core of what they're saying. If you're limiting literally what you can say in that interrogation, then law school, is, as we know it, is over. Academic freedom, as, as we know it, is over. Challenging people to think about what they're saying is over. It's just like we're taking loyalty oaths to whatever Stefanik wants us to say at that moment. Uh, and I wish they had said that. That's my frustration, David. You know, you had these three college presidents. They're all way smarter than I am. Their SAT scores are way higher than mine. I mean, you guys, I said it. I'm just a dumb podcaster in my attic. How come you don't know this? This is my frustration, David. You get what I'm saying? It's like when the right punches the left, or even when they punch lib mostly liberals, liberals get all squishy. You know, I, I totally with you, and I, like the performance reminded me of um, which we may have brought up on the show before. But the moment in the 1988 debates oh, uh, yes. when Michael, when Michael Dukakis was asked what he would do if somebody like would he support the death penalty if somebody raped and murdered his wife, um, and Dukakis like just kind of took it in and was like, "Well, you know, I'd still be against the death penalty." Next question, and everybody was like, "You know, like, look, you can't demand emotions from people, right? Like, uh, don't we, we call that emotional labor, okay? But like, you know, what everybody wanted from Dukakis was to be like." to be upset at the idea right, of somebody killing his wife. Um, and he just, he, he kind of treated, he treated it in this like clinical way. And so I think like what people who don't, who aren't immersed in the subject don't know the legal niceties of campus speech and all that stuff. I think all they really wanted out of Claudine Gay, uh, the president of Harvard was for her to be like, you know, calls for genocide against Jews are, are wrong and offensive. I, and I'm, I'm so upset if they're happening on my campus, we will investigate. And of course, this being a private college, uh, calling for genocide is a violation of our policies, right? But, you know, Representative Stefanik, uh, what I object to about this line of questioning is your attempt to define a call for genocide as inclusive of a variety of things that are merely people uh, contesting the Palestinians' right to exist as a people. Right. Um, in other words, like gen like calling for genocide is wrong. We are a private college. Um, I could write a policy tomorrow morning that throws out any student that explicitly calls for genocide. I could do that. It wouldn't be a problem. Right. Um, the problem here is not that we don't have those the, those rules on the books. The problem is your attempt to politicize and ban uh, and cast out of the public square pro-Palestinian activism that is not anti-Semitic and is not a call for genocide, uh, has nothing to do with any of this stuff. That's what this hearing is really about, Representative. Why don't you think about that? Yeah, no, that's, see, now, what you just did reminded me of what so many people did in 1988, uh, right after Dukakis uh, did the, uh, his performance in the debate. And I had the same thought. Uh, I watched that debate back in 1988. I remember howling at the TV at the uh, and <laughs> uh, I so I'll go back to another 80s showdown. Uh, if uh, and that was when Oliver North was called before Congress uh, at a hearing. This is ancient history, millennials. Oliver North was a uh, 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 a Marine who served in the Reagan White House. 
uh, and was sort of the back channel guy who cut this deal in which uh, the United States, <laughs> oh my God, it's so bad, sold arms to Iran, who was our, our, our vowed enemy, like while telling the people of America, this is the greatest, most dangerous threat to our country, we sold them arms and then used the, the proceeds of those arms sales to fund the Contras in Nicaragua, which was a dr- violation of congressional law. So they, <laughs> so many laws were broken. Uh, and Oliver Nord, when he was called before Congress, defied Congress. So I did nothing wrong. You're the ones with your little wimpy liberal bans on aiding the f- communist fighters. And I, I was appalled by Oliver North, et cetera, and so forth. But at least he stood up for what he believed. I say what you Again, what do you believe in, university presidents, liberals in general? You are so squishy. Michael Dukakis, you don't believe in anything. It's like, take a freaking stand and... This is my frustration, David, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It's like I call it the squishiness of liberals. It's like they don't believe in anything or they like test with, you know, like I always tease it's like the Axelrod. You, you do a test of voters before you take a stand. Like, how far can we go on the issue of gay marriage? What will swing voters in Milwaukee think about it? Hold on, uh, Barack Obama, before you take a stand, let's get these results from this focus group. All right, here's our results. Here's what you believe in. That's kind of what liberals do in my book. That's the, like, what do you believe in? And I feel as though the Democrats are at a disadvantage uh, and liberals in general are at a disadvantage because they're so wimpy. Uh, your thoughts on that general concept? Sure. I mean, I 100% agree, right? Like, I mean, I think that one good thing that they could have done in that hearing that would have been beneficial for higher education in general is to articulate a positive vision of, like, what the rules on campus are meant to do, right? And, like, um, to defend the idea of, like, you know, freewheeling debate in class and, like, inquiry, um, you know, unrestrained by political forces and um, stand up for academic freedom for professors and students, while also emphasizing that, like, creating standards of community conduct is a difficult and ongoing process. Like, there is no easy answer for someone to wave a magic wand and be like, this is what is permissible and not permissible on my campus, right? Um, And I think that there is a distinction between saying, you know, I have the right under academic freedom to publish an article, uh, you know, calling for a single binational state in Israel, Palestine, right? Like I have that academic freedom. Some rich dude in in Utah should not be able to get me fired because that's what I think. Okay. That's one thing, right? Um, Two, like, yes, maybe the pendulum has swung a little bit too far towards like protecting students from ideas that they find harmful, you know, Um, and that there may be, procedures and policies at the various institutions, it might've actually behooved them to show up with a couple of examples of things. They're like, yeah, like this is, you know, maybe we should rethink this. Right. Um, and I think that the, there has been a trend on the left of like, um, you know, defining as outside of the boundaries of academic inquiry and discourse, like ideas that are just like conservative. Right. Um, and I try to emphasize to my students at Roosevelt where like 99% of them are leftists, (laughs) 
that like if I don't introduce you to these concepts, I'm doing you a disservice because you're going to get out of here and think that like nobody on earth um, has any good reason to think that lowering taxes is beneficial, right? Or like you're going to get out of here and, and just be like shocked and be like, wow, like there's people that don't agree with the Palestinian position. That's so crazy. I would never have known that. Um, like you're doing them a literal disservice when you create cocoons for them um, in which they don't hear any ideas that challenge their orthodoxy or your orthodoxy, okay? Um, however, um, just like claiming that the, that a classroom is just like this, like, uh, like this First Amendment uh, merry-go-round in which people can say whatever they want at any time is not just unworkable in practice. It's, it's also completely contradicting what Stefanik is saying in the first place, right? Like, because on the one hand, you have these cancel culture warriors being like, the First Amendment, you know, like, like you can't criticize, like anything, anything goes on campus. You know, if you want to invite Milo, you, you know, you remember this guy, the, Oh, I yeah. his last name. Yeah. Just like complete psycho. Yeah. Campus like campus conservatives were inviting this guy all over the country. Right. And it, every time he got invited somewhere, it was this huge uproar. Right. Like free, like academic freedom, like general climate of free inquiry does not mean that you have to give student groups um, the right to invite literally anybody that they want to campus and, and that the, the campus is their public square. Right. Like people live and work in these places. Again, like you have these like outrageous provocateur outrage machines showing up at places where 18 year olds live and sleep and so to say that like oh anything goes there uh, any attempt to to uh to suppress that is um is against the first amendment while simultaneously trying to get college presidents fired for not suppressing the speech of their own students is just it's like bananas in so many different directions i can't even put my i can't even like wrap my head around it because the hypocrisy they're not even trying to hide it right and like, I feel comfortable, I've always felt comfortable with my position on all of this, Ben, which is that like, I, I've been teaching for 22 years. I can think of like three times in my entire career where I've looked at a student, something they were saying in the classroom, and I was like, I don't think you should be saying that here, you know? Um, and even then, I wasn't like, I'm going to run it up to the provost. I was just like, <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah. come on, man. I mean, I, I remember one time, um, this was a long time ago. But a student said something like we were we were talking about um, something in the context of Ukraine and uh, women's rights in Ukraine, and this kid was like, "Wait, I don't understand. Like, how can you rape someone if you're married to them?" And I was like, "That's enough, okay? We're gonna move on, right?" Like, and I pulled him aside afterwards, and I was like, "Man, you know, I don't even know how to tell you like how how wrong what you said was, right?" But like, there's you know, I, I just like just think before you speak, right? Um, but like we're not in there just like you know rigidly policing student speech or telling them they're not allowed to say things. Maybe that happens in some places. I don't think that's right. Um, and I'm perfectly comfortable saying like I you know in my classrooms I, I teach politics. You know I'm not going to say to somebody like well you can't you can't advocate for a border wall. You know that's like uh, you know that's going to be received as violence by some of your fellow classmates. I don't I don't believe in that stuff. And I've always been very comfortable saying. I believe in free debate in my classrooms. Um, it's mostly not what we do, but when we do, I believe people should be able to say within reasonable boundaries, whatever they want. Um, but I'm, I also don't think that the popular understanding of like what should and shouldn't be happening on a campus has any relationship to what really happens there, what should be happening there. So um, to the extent that there are now efforts to you know, destroy the careers of law students, 
uh, who who are calling, you know, saying "river to the sea" in a protest or whatever. That's what's happening out there, Ben. Like the the uh, the underlying motivation for this whole imbroglio um, is right wingers who are upset that they've lost control of college campuses um, and want to reestablish that control. They want donors to dictate to presidents um, what can be taught in the classrooms or what programs should exist. What's happening at Penn? Um, I'm involved in like a little private chat with a bunch of grads from Penn who are like, "This is. Do you see what's happening here? Like they can to the president so that this rich asshole, uh, sorry, this rich person." Could, <laughs> could take it over and fire professors who are uh, who are uh, critical of Israel. This is a, this stuff's been going on since I was there. All right, yeah. this, I really get I really get No, I uh, it's an important point. <laughs> uh uh and uh so it fits into the a very uh, a general theme uh, that I come back to over and over again uh, as really an expression of frustration. When I think about all the problems we have as a society and our attempts to deal with them, uh, and I've said this to you so many times, David, I've said this so many times in this show, I've written it so many times, uh, we're really, uh, we're really, our hands are tied behind our back. We're really at a disadvantage because at least half of the country uh, does not care about solving the problems at all. They're just trying to use them uh, to gain advantage in a political uh, arena. And so it just, you know, climate change put that at the top of the list you know to be <laughs> destroying the planet as we speak but half the country uh says uh denies that it exists and it says it's a plot of the chinese and uh the radical left so there goes any attempt uh for climate change so this is not nearly as significant i think but free expression is important it's the bedrock of our american democracy and they're trying to figure out a way to uh, balance the, the rights of people to express themselves uh, without crossing over into violence uh, and hate speech. Uh, that's a challenge. And I see no nobody on the right who's absolutely uh, sincere in any way about finding a balance. They just invoke the right uh, their right to say whatever they want, no matter who they insult uh, at any given time and call it free speech. Uh, and if you say anything about them or they criticize them, they stop sobbing and saying they're picked on. Uh, Elon Musk, I would say Stefanik's a fraud, but then I think about Elon Musk, who purchased Twitter under guys that he wanted to expand free speech. This guy stifles free speech against anybody who says anything critical of him at his company. It's like fired. You you can't get a union at a, at uh, at Tesla, okay? He's under fire in Europe. I don't know if you follow this stuff. So they're complete hypocrites uh, on uh, on this subject of free speech. Completely, totally. Go ahead. I mean, 100%. And the, the, the way I try to illustrate this for people is like, so what happens when you give like right-wingers the keys to a university? Right? Do they set up a free speech Valhalla? No. They set up like Liberty University where you, you they, they explicitly don't hire liberals. Um, the classroom, the content of the classrooms is like strictly regulated. They will fire professors um, for for you know expressing like liberal or left views, and they make no apologies about it, right? They're like, it's a private college. Like, I'm sorry, the First Amendment doesn't apply here, um, and we're conservative. It's a conservative place. If you're not conservative, get out. I remember applying to a university in Seattle. I saw this job posted. This was back in 2009, um, and I had like a fascination with the West Coast at that point. I was like, oh, cool, Seattle, Seattle Pacific University. What a, sounds like a great place, liberal arts college. And the job posting said, if you're not a practicing whatever, uh, evangelical or something, you will be very uncomfortable here. 
And I was like, oh, well, that doesn't sound like <laughs> that doesn't sound like this. free inquiry to me, does it? No, because <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, people don't object to the speech codes. They object to not being the ones writing them, right? Um, and so uh, the whole thing is just the well, whole thing is just gross. Man. I'm going to throw something at you, which is uh, me speaking, not David Ferris. I'm giving him a waiver. I'm giving David a waiver. <laughs> uh, it's definitely not Roosevelt University. So the views and opinions of Ben, as they're about to be expressed, are those of Ben and nobody else. But I've long believed this. Uh, and so follow me on this. Uh, I know a little bit about academia because uh, I was raised by a college professor, my father. And so I watched college professors interact. At a very early age in my life, I watched them interact. How they, I saw how they, it heard how they talked to each other, and uh, how they challenged each other. Uh, and I realized it was a very competitive environment. At least it was that. I have no idea what it's like now. Very competitive. Everybody's trying to outdo the other guy. Everybody there, you put six history professors in a room and each one is trying to prove he or it's you, it was he back then. It's the smartest person in the room. And they are pretty freaking smart, David. So it's a hell of a competition. They're dragging in every little re reference they can from here and there, tying it together just to show the people they know the reference. All right. So I'm like, this is a very competitive venue, arena. It's not unlike like a basketball team. It's competitive. Everybody's trying to be on top. And my thing about right-wingers, they're always sobbing and crying like LeBron James and a referee uh, because that, that they don't, they're not, uh, there's not enough right-wingers in academia and in the universities. And I'm telling you guys, you know what? You don't measure up. You're not as good as those lefties. They're smarter than you. They work harder than you. They, they get up early. They stay up late. They memorize their stuff. They know, they know their references. You don't know. You lost, dude. It's a meritocracy, and they beat you, and now you're crying like a little baby, and you're trying to change the rules so that you can get something you didn't earn. And that's my belief. And that's why there's no uh, preponderance of right-wingers on campus, because they can't compete. They can only go to, like, their little, what do they call them? Like, these rich guys fund them, and it's, you know, you, think tanks. Thank you. <laughs> call it a think tank. What a joke. <laughs> that's, that's not a meritocracy. That's like where you suck up to the boss. Uh, well, the, the rich guy kicks in the money. You go, oh, I agree with that. Whatever you say sounds good to me. So that's my take, David. And uh, that's my view of the world. And I'd like to know your thoughts uh, about the opinions that I express. Go ahead. I No, I agree with you. Um, I, what I would say is like, you know, they do these like surveys of college professors, uh, ideological views and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> what is it what does it matter whether the bio professor is like a is a lefty or a righty right like it doesn't like like 92 percent of what goes on in a college classroom has nothing to do with like the american left right schism nor should it a b like there is no secret cabal of lefty professors keeping conservatives out of the classrooms like they're simply not going to grad school and they're not getting PhDs. And the few ones that do get PhDs are going to the think tanks that you just talked about. And the reason is not because no one will hire them. 
the reason is that they don't they don't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel like a safe space to them. Like they don't want to be the only conservative in a building full of liberals, and so they don't apply. And when they do apply, they get they get their feathers ruffled because everybody disagrees with them about everything. And it's like, well, sorry, I don't. You know, like I'm not obligated to be like the Constitution is a wonderful document just because you think it is, or because I, you know, it's like they're re- they're basically making a hostile workplace environment claims, which in other contexts, of course, they think is like liberal fascism. But like when it's applied to them, uh, it's it's about their rights and their freedoms. Okay, um, and like, dude, is this to say that like left like the people on campuses somewhere, or like leftist administrators, or like people have not made some bad decisions? I'm not saying that at all. Okay, my dad is, a, is was just a recently retired conservative professor, um, who I think was on several occasions made I think that people were unfair to him. Okay, um, and so it's not like they're making this stuff up out of whole cloth. Um, it's more that like there's a there's a presumption of a conspiracy, you know, like like a you know you know how hiring happens in academia, right? It's such a weird industry. They hire like a year in advance, and we have to do a national search. So, so anybody that wants to apply, and we have to like go through their files. We're not, there's not a day where we get together with those files and they're like, all right, guys, time to throw out all the conservatives, right? Put them in the trash, <laughs> light it on fire. Cause you, first of all, you can't tell yeah. from a, from a, a academic yeah. uh, application <laughs> whether the person is a Republican or not, you know, there's a, and you're not, you're not really supposed to like Google people, right? When you're hiring them. So I don't know whether your dissertation about the Sudanese genocide makes you a leftist or a rightist. I, who, like, I don't even know. It's just, Again, there's this popular misunderstanding that like liberals have all banded together and been like, no conservatives here, right? Um, and that's not what happens at all. It's just not what happens. Like, is there a preference for people who share similar uh, sort of scholarly outlooks or ideological outlooks? Sure. Yeah. I don't know how you can make that illegal. Um, but mostly, you talked about the competitiveness of universities. Um Mostly it's professors trying to get people that agree with them about like weird scholarly stuff in the classroom. <laughs> you know, like there was this whole thing in the early 2000s where like political scientists had to start an organization called Perestroika. I'm not making this up. We called it Perestroika and it was like political scientists who use certain kinds of methods that aren't just pure data, right? And so the schism in political scientists was like these people uh, adhering to something called rational choice theory um, versus uh people who are proponents of mixed methods, okay? And I can guarantee you, and I like I would say this in public, if there were content if there was contention on hiring committees, it was about methods of research wow. and not whether you were a democrat or a republican. Mm-hmm. No one cared and no one asked. No one I've been in academia for 20 years. No one has ever made my partisanship an issue or asked me about it or cared, right? Um and and that's the way it works. Maybe there's a maybe there's some rogue actors, right? Like we're talking about, there's four thousand institutions of higher learning, right, in this country, um, hundreds of thousands of professors, like th- thousands of academic departments, and a billion provosts, right? Like some, I guarantee that someone somewhere is doing something really dumb, um, and someone at like the Daily Signal from the Heritage Foundation is going to be like on it, right? Like you're like. Mm-hmm. Look at what this professor at the University of like Southwest Missouri said. Blah. <laughs> um, but the yeah. idea that there's like this cabal of people like persecuting conservatives on college campuses is just not it's just not true. Uh, and that uh, even though what uh, you said is true, it will not stop. Um, it will not stop the Stefanics of the world, the uh, the Musks of the world, the Trumps of the world, uh, for creating a caricature and then uh, destroying the caricature uh, and f- using it to fire up uh, MAGA. And um, 
Yeah, it's disturbing because it could lead to their their her proclamation uh, that uh, they're for academic freedom or they're for freedom of expression, which you hear uh, if coming out of Florida, you hear that uh, uh, DeSantis, et cetera, so forth, will probably lead to the end, could lead to the end of democracy uh, it, it, uh, in our country uh, if, Ma- if MAGA prevails. All right, we're run out of time. We, we can't even talk about uh, the very provocative and interesting article that you wrote on genocide. Uh, which we'll save for another time, uh, because unfortunately that issue is not going anywhere. Uh, as no, unfortunately. Uh, uh, but um, I will uh, close by asking you the, my perennial question. Uh, since I think you last appeared on the show, uh, there was another Republican debate, uh, presidential debate. I'm not sure if you watched it or not. I uh, did watch it. Uh, and, uh, not proud of that fact, David, but I did watch it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so in your humble opinion, uh, this is a question I ask you in one form or another on every show, are the Republicans any closer to nominating someone other uh, than, uh, Donald Trump a subsequent, uh, after that Republican debate, or have we pretty much remained where we were, are, and that it's a foregone conclusion, uh, that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. I think as things currently stand, it's more or less a foregone conclusion, right? Um, even if you take all of the all of the numbers for everyone that's running against them and you add them together, it still adds up to a decisive loss in pretty much every state that's being polled. Um, in other words, Trump, uh, if the uh, primary was tomorrow, would walk away with this. I don't think he'd lose a single state. And that's just the reality. Um, I think that there are things that could happen externally that could shake up the race, right? Like... Uh, he has a health problem or something, or uh, one of these trials moves really quickly, but the trials aren't going to start until after Super Tuesday, right? Um, And I just don't see how Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, who are the only two plausible alternatives here at this point. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Vivek. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't see how either of them is going to make up the kind of ground that they need to make up um, because, A, he's not debating with them in the first place, um, B, the, the Republican primary electorate has absorbed so much terrible information about this dude without uh, yeah. without ever turning on him. It's hard to see what could happen between... I mean, we're really barely a month out from Iowa at this point. It's really hard what, to see what could happen between now and Iowa that's going to change that equation. Um, and so I think that it's much less likely that they're going to nominate someone else and increasingly likely that they're going to nominate him and then something terrible is going to happen to him, right? Which is like, he may be convicted of a crime, between when they nominate him and when the general election is. And then Republicans are really in trouble because the polling indicates um, that voters, a significant slice of the electorate, would peel away from Donald Trump, including hardcore Republicans, if he is convicted of a, of a, of a felony. Now, do I believe that that number will hold up in reality when it actually happens? No, not, not as such. But I think he would lose some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty clear that nothing in the legal or political environment, nothing from his past, nothing that he said, nothing that he could say. He went on TV the other day and was like, I'm going to be a dictator on day one. Um, Nothing that he could say or do is going to change the commitment, the primary electorate to Donald Trump. Um, And so increasingly it feels like Haley and DeSantis are auditioning to be his VP or um, positioning themselves for someone else or positioning themselves for 2028 and not really seriously contesting this because neither of them is taking it to, to Trump in the way I'm not even sure that that would work, right? But like 
if I was like, I really want to be the nominee, I wouldn't be dancing around the subject. I'd be like, Trump is a dictator. He can't win, right? Like he's he tried to overthrow the government. What are you all thinking? But like someone should just turn to the Republican electorate on TV and be like, go, you know, my brothers and sisters, like what are we doing here? Can you please just take a second and think about what it is that you are about to do by nominating Donald Trump to be the president again. Yeah. If wow. they're not willing to do that, man, I, I just I just don't see it. I agree. We're gonna end uh we'll close uh by tying the two themes together because when you went on that riff talking about their inability to call out Donald Trump and say what's obvious and right in their face, it did kind of remind me of the squishiness of liberals. So I, I guess it's not just liberals that get squishy. Uh you know what I'm saying? It's uh and it's not just David Axelrod uh doing uh, surveys and then basing their comments on uh, the results of focus groups. Uh, I, I apparently conservatives do it as well because yeah, it is pathetic. It's absolutely, they're competing with this man for uh, <laughs> the nomination uh, for, with, for votes and, and they're afraid to criticize him. Wow. That is, uh, that is crazy. deep. Uh, all right, David, we will, uh, we'll talk uh, other issues of that you wrote about, including your, uh, your article on genocide. I think it was in uh, Slate, correct? Did I have it right? Yep. yep. Yeah. I urge everybody to check it out. It's a fascinating, um, a dispassionate, in my humble opinion, examination of what we mean when we use the word or genocide or what, what different people mean uh, when they use the word genocide and how it gets politicized in the United States. Uh, and I, I thought it would work well in conjunction with the conversation about academic freedom, et cetera, and so forth, but we just couldn't stop ourselves. And we just, <laughs> we went a little longer on that one. And it's like, ask a professor to talk about the Academy. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know. It'll what be was an I hour, doing? buddy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's like trying to restrain me on the bulls. Uh, all right. My beloved bulls are awful. Okay. Uh, David Ferris, thank you very much. Uh, also want to thank, uh, producer Nady does an outstanding job that's david ferris i'm ben jarofsky take care everybody 